The Bane Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Sand Kings and Frogwater, Dragons and Trade Secrets. We put paid to the notion that in space no one can hear you scream. Plus, part 33 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast, special Halloween edition. As always, it's an honor to serve you. It's a cookbook. I'm your ghost host, Bane editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have a roundtable discussion of the new Bane anthology, In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, or should we say... The anthology is a collection of the best of old and new science fiction horror stories, all set in space or out there somewhere. It has great stories by Arthur C. Clarke, George Railroad Martin. Yep, we have his wonderful story Sand Kings in there. Theodore Sturgeon and Ashton Kushner. <laughs> Just checking to see if you were paying attention. Anyhow, several of the authors in the collection have departed this earthly realm, as you know, but a few of us remain behind, at least for now. The roundtable discussion includes editor Hank Davis, who also has a new story in the anthology. Now, this Hank Davis tale is a cause for celebration. Hank wrote a bunch of short stories back in the late 1960s, but then fell silent for, well, 43 years. Hank has the distinction of having sold a story to a Walking Dead anthology of legend, Final or Last or Post-Penultimate Dangerous Visions, edited by Harlan Ellison. This anthology is kind of a science fiction legend, as Ellison has sat on it for more than 30 years now, always promising it will come out any day now. Sounds like the making for some dread and loathing-filled Edgar Allan Poe tale, doesn't it? The anthology that never lived. Yet will not die. Anyway, Hank Davis's fiction writing is very much alive, and his new short story in In Space No One Can Hear You Scream is really excellent. He'll discuss it with us. Also along is Sarah A. Hoyt, who has a story in the anthology. Sarah is, of course, the author of the Dark Ship science fiction series, and of the Were-Dragon, Were-Panther, Werewolf urban science fiction shifter series with latest entry, Noah's Boy. And finally, I also have a new short story in the anthology. Many of you may not have been born in the 1990s, but I was a pretty prolific short story writer back in that long ago before time. I won the Asimov Reader's Choice Award for Best Short Story of the Year back in 1996, and had lots of stories in Year's Best anthologies. I was also a Hugo finalist, which allowed me to attend the famous Hugo Losers Party at the World Science Fiction Convention, a distinction I cherish to this day. Anyway, I like to keep my hand in on short story writing, and I have a new one in the anthology as well. 
Hosting the roundtable is Bang Consulting Editor David Afsharirad. Sarah, Hank, and I had a lot of fun doing this one. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. It's also very exciting that we suggest you wrap your arms around yourself and try not to let your bones dance outside of your skin. Or if they do, it ain't no sin to kick off your skin and dance around in your bones. <laughs> oh, and also stand by for news. All Saints Day is almost upon us, and that means the November hardcovers and original trade paperbacks will be on sale at booksellers everywhere. Yes, I'm excited about Trade Secret by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. This is the latest entry in the Leaden Universe series. It harks back to the earlier days of the saga and features Terran trader Jethry Goblin. Goblin. Doesn't what is the name of his spaceship in the in the book? Goblin's market is his family's ship and he ends up on a Leaden ship. Also in October is a new Carrera series novel from Tom Cratman. Now, there's a guy who knows how to take things to extremes, both his main character, Patricio Carrera, and Tom himself. We've got a two-part interview with Tom coming up here on the podcast in November. Now, these Carrera books are personal favorites of mine. I love the take-no-prisoners, tell-it-like-it-is tone to Tom's books. It's really refreshing in the modern-day sea of politically correct hogwash that's out there. Frankly, it makes me want to scream, only... In space, space no one can hear you scream. Also, in original trade paperback, we have the long-awaited sequel to Grand Central Arena, Reich's Spore's science fiction novel with its galactic-sized setting, The Arena. This one is called Spheres of Influence, and it's adventurous, rollicking science fiction at its best. So check that out. All of these are available at BaneEbooks.com and at booksellers everywhere. And since we have had several astronaut readers on the International Space Station, it's available even in space where, well... You know the story. <laughs> it's the Bain Free Radio Hour. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David F. Sharirad. With Halloween just around the corner, we're focusing on the macabre, the spooky, the creepy, the downright horrific. But we aren't talking about musty New England graveyards or run-down Transylvanian castles. Aww. Today we're turning our attention to the stars and the horrors that may well amate humankind as we venture out into the void. The horrors? Horrors. Oh, I see. Yeah. Horrors. <laughs> That's a different anthology. Yeah. I see. In space, no one could hear you scream. A new anthology of science fiction horror stories is out now from Bane. And if you're looking for something different than the same old zombies and vampires and werewolves, you should pick it up. It collects creepy classics of the genre and features new stories guaranteed to keep you up at night. With me to talk about the new collection and about the intersection of science fiction and horror is the editor of In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, Bain Editor Emeritus, Hank Davis. Hi there. Joining me and Hank in the studio is Bain Editor and frequent podcast host, Tony Daniel. Tony contributed a brand new story to the anthology, which we'll talk about a little later. Okay, he's also <laughs> the author of nine novels and a short story collection. His frequently reprinted story, A Dry, Quiet War, was nominated for a Hugo, and he won the Asimov's Reader's Poll for his story, Life on the Moon. His most recent novel was a collaboration with David Drake in the popular General series. That book was titled The Heretic, and its sequel, The Savior, is set to be released next August. He also co-wrote the horror film Beneath, which was directed by horror icon Larry Fessenden. You can catch Beneath on the Chiller channel now, or download it from Amazon, iTunes, etc. 
Uh, hey, Tony. Thanks for uh, taking the other side of the mic here. Howdy. It's nice to be on the other side of the mic for once. Joining us on the phone is Sarah Hoyt. Sarah's novel, Dark Ship Thieves, won the Prometheus Award, and her latest novel, A Few Good Men, which is also set in that same universe, was nominated for the Prometheus Award this year. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. All right. Uh, so we'll get into the particulars of the anthology and of the stories contained therein, but I just wanted to go around the room, so to speak, and ask everyone if they had a particular memory of a scary science fiction story, uh, one that really got under their skin and stuck with them. Uh, Hank, how about you? You mentioned something in the in the dedication, right? Back in the 50s, when I was a, or late 50s, when I was a rotten kid, my brother was a rotten younger kid, uh, shock, we were watching Shock Theater on Saturday nights. That was, that was golden hours. We see all the great classics, uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, The Invisible Man, The Mummy, and the other Mummy movies. Which went downhill pretty quick, but but uh, I don't know if I were naming a. Uh, I, th- I think uh, David Drake once said in uh, in his recent paid book, Night and Demons, available uh, at good bookstores everywhere, that uh, his favorite horror story is The Cold Equations by Tom Godwin, which is something people don't usually think of as a horror story. Uh, the horror comes from the inevitability of the laws of nature and how you can't get around them, just because it's going to be, you're being forced to do something uh, despicable, or a lot of people will die by the universe. Yeah, yeah, by the universe. That's good. And that uh, one story I probably could have put in the book uh, is a Theodore Sturgeon story I read when I was young called Farewell to Eden. It unsettled me so much, I've never read it again. So if anybody wants to look up Farewell <laughs> to Eden, go ahead and read it, but I'm not going to uh, read it to you. Sarah, how about you? Is there a science fiction horror story or movie that really sticks out in your mind as uh, something that made an impression on you? Not science fiction as such, although, you know, I did read Dark Day War of Golden Night, which... Most of the horror I read was Ray Bradbury because I'm a horror wussy. (laughs) Well, if it's real, real, quote-unquote, supernatural horror, it evokes... You have to remember, I come from a culture where this stuff is taken deadly serious. I think you need to have some separation before you can laugh at supernatural horror or be thrilled by it. When you, you know, when this brings up all the stories your grandma told you that she claimed happened just around the corner, you're going to sort of go, uh, I don't want to read this for fun, thank you. So, and I hate the, what, what my friend Kate calls the meaty skull with snakes horror, the, the gross out type, uh, horror. So I don't normally watch horror movies and, my horror was mostly Bradbury because the poetic element provides that separation so that I can enjoy it. It doesn't seem as real when you have the poetry in. That said, you know, Ray Bradbury could be incredibly, incredibly creepy. Um, it, the problem I'm having is that I can't remember any of the stories titles because I read them originally in Portuguese and one of the things they had lots of fun with was retitling them all and those are still the titles for me. 
But, you know, again, Dark Day War and Golden Knight was, was scary enough. Um, there was also a science fiction, I wouldn't say it was Cornblood. There was a science fiction novel, which I loved, but always gave me nightmares when I read. And it was about uh, human colonization of a planet. And the main character is slowly taken over by one of the aliens' dead kings without actually realizing it, you know. He's taken over from the inside, and in the end he becomes this dead king. And the whole thing was incredibly creepy. I can't remember the title. I read it in Portuguese. I read it like five times. It has this sort of unclean fascination. I think it was Cornblus. I have no idea what the title mm-hmm. of the novel Does was. Does that uh, ring a bell? Hank, you uh, are the repository of all things Golden Age. No, I, I think I've read all of Cornblus' novels except for a couple of poor novels he did. I've never been able to get my heads up. <laughs> uh, he did those under a pseudonym. Uh, it that, that, that does uh, sound like a takeoff or uh, uh, not this August or the ones I have read. We can crowdsource it. So yeah, anyone somebody. listening to this, if that Sarah's uh, that novel Sarah describes sounds familiar, uh, write into Bain. Yeah, well, you can us. go to the we'll Bain Bar uh, yeah. Bain Bar discussion on the podcast and and tell us. Uh, yeah, I'd actually like to know who wrote it. I mean, the last time I read it, I must have been twelve. Yeah, 13, this, this so is this is a novel. But I remember being scared about my gourd, and I always, I always dreamed about the stupid book whenever I read it. So I'd say it did an effective job of it. Uh-huh, right. This is this is a novel, right? Not a shorter piece. Yeah, it's a novel. Well, it's a golden age novel, which means it could easily be, you know, twenty thousand words. Uh-huh. Especially because uh, translated into Portuguese, things get longer. So it could be a novella in in English. Uh huh. Tony, yeah. how about you? Anything bring, come to mind? Oh yeah, uh, the it's still the scariest story I ever read. Um, Philip K. Dick's the the father thing, which is one of the scariest stories. It it, it stays with me to this day. Um, I, I don't go into like little woods behind the house and stuff like that because I'm afraid I'm going <laughs> to encounter one of those. Uh, those those cocoons it, it's it's invasion of the body snatchers sort of story as well um and it's scary as heck and another one uh that also stays with me to this day is fritz fritz Leiber's, um a pail full of air which is about um it's a it's a post-apocalyptic uh earth where earth has been yanked away from the sun and is is going through space and this kid sees something he has to go outside and get a pail of frozen air and bring it back inside uh the physics are Perhaps not uh, entirely Newtonian, but um, in any case, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's a science fiction. It's a plausible science fiction story, and, but it's just scary that he's out there. There's no sun. Um, he's the last boy on Earth, probably, um, and it's just and he sees something out there that's not that he can't explain, and it's just the whole incredible scariness of being alone in the universe that that brought down on me uh, when I was a teenager just stayed with me and I think about those um, all the time when when I'm scared those are the two stories I reference a lot you know when you when you mentioned the invasion of the body snatchers it occurred to me it's funny how the tone of a novel can make it science fiction or horror because objectively the puppet masters is a horror novel. 
but because the characters are still fighting and in the end sort of win, it's science fiction. Yeah, that actually gets into something I was going to ask. Um, just real quickly, I will say, um, to me, Matheson's stuff is always what, you know, Born of Man and Woman, which I guess maybe that's not science fiction, but Lover When You're Near Me, uh, another great, that was the, and the Bradbury stuff was always my earlier. But um, what Sarah said, uh, that the tone of something can make a difference, um, is something I was going to want to talk about. Because to me, there are stories that are, um, they're horror stories, but have, that have science fictional settings. And then there's science fictional, fiction stories that are horrific. So I think of Alien more as a, really a horror movie that the monster just happens to be an alien. And then um, things like Frankenstein or War of the Worlds, which are science fiction stories, but they're, they're very, they're scary, you know? Um, yeah. And I think in this anthology, Hank, you kind of collected both of those things. Um, you know, me and Tony were talking about the Clark story, um, A Walk in the Dark, and, you know, how that's kind of a, you know, a traditional... Uh, is there something out there in the woods, so to speak, story? Um, but then you've also got things that are more the horror comes from the science fiction. Um, was that, is that a distinction you make, Hank? And did you kind of want to include both of those stories uh, when you were collecting these? Uh, well, the, the ground rule I was given by Tony Weisskopf, who wanted me to do the thing, was they all had to happen off Earth. So that was the first thing. There are... There are some stories in there, like the Theodore Sturgeon story is very much like a traditional space opera with the usual Sturgeon twist that all the characters, except maybe one, and maybe not even that one, are, have been driven insane on purpose. And it's, uh, as Sarah said, the characters are fighting back, so that might take it out of being as scary a horror story as it might have been. Yeah, Tony, what about, is this something that you kind of consider when, you know, uh, reading maybe scary science fiction or uh, or not? Yeah, I, well, um, what we were talking about earlier is that is that horror is, horror can be any genre if, uh, you know, it can be something that psychological is still considered horror and science fiction. So horror is sort of a, a state of, of feeling that a story gets, uh, evokes in you. As opposed, you know, and, and science fiction, fantasy, these have to do with settings and um, making a setting plausible with science, a future setting or or uh, an imaginary setting plausible with science fiction or or logical with fantasy. But horror is, I think it ne horror needs to be logical. So I'd probably put it more on fantasy end of things, um, even when it's science fiction based. Um, the the fact that something is uh, evokes terror, terror is something that if you're strictly logical, you should never feel, but you do. So. Oh, I don't know. You can feel terror while being strictly logical. It's just really hard to evoke in, in fiction. You know, if you're heading into... I, I had a friend to whom this happened. If you're heading into a uh, crossing with a lot of traffic and suddenly your wheel comes off in your hands, you're perfectly logical and you're going to feel horror. It's just really hard to convey that immediacy <laughs> to the reader who's sitting comfortably at home. Um, but yeah, it's the, the horror con connects with more primal emotions. Although you should have some primal emotions in science fiction. Yeah, well, but, a but sense of wonder is somewhat the, primal. Yeah. 
world building and the logical part and and the characters still having you know fighting them in horror it's supposed to short circuit all your thoughts and all your and to me it works best if it goes past what you think is possible which is why the, the possession by the alien king terrified me because the this isn't even supposed to be possible, yeah. and it went straight. And they explained it. It was science fiction horror. They explained it with, you know, the telepathic properties of these aliens and all that. But. Well, I, I think that was what I was saying. I mean, I, I, you can be scared and it be logical, but horror is sort of when you enter it, like you said, when you push it so far that you're in a different place where um, the fright has become something that's just a, it feeds on itself as an end in itself. Um, and, and you're terrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, that sometimes science fiction writer Robert Block, for instance, uh, will always be known for Psycho, uh, mostly because of the Hitchcock movie. And of course, there's nothing in there that's impossible. There's no fantasy element unless you, unless as I do, you tend to think of psychology as not really a science. But uh, but it's uh, it's definitely a horror story. I, I should say back with uh, getting back to Shock Theater in the late fifties, that uh, every once in a while they would have a story, a movie that had no supernatural element at all. And I always felt cheated with that case, like <laughs> like uh, Val Luton's Bedlam when they showed that. That's just about a uh, uh, insane asylum and uh, the woman who gets. Uh, Put in there by evil, evil Boris Karloff, even though she's sane. Well, the um, the thing about psychological horror is that it, it, like in Silence of the Lambs, for instance, it delves into evil that that goes beyond irrational. You know, Hannibal Lecter is is the embodiment of evil, even if he's um, even if he could be explained. It's it's something beyond just. Uh, it is supernatural, in other words. There's some element in him that, that can't be got at by the um, by just a, a psychological profile, and that's why it's scary, because, of course, that could be in us as well. I can't imagine anyone logically doing that, although some of the news started, you know, that the, the guy in Ohio was keeping the young women have that same thing, but it scares us at a horror level because... Our logical mind can't put ourselves in the place of these people. So, yes, you're right. It evokes a supernatural feel. Yeah, I, I once knew somebody who said he didn't want to read about serial killers. He said he'd prefer to read about vampires and ghosts and stuff because he knew they weren't real. But serial killers were really unsettled him because they were real and they might happen to him. Talking about how there's this tonal um, difference, maybe, uh, that... that differentiates horror uh within and among from different other genres um you know, hank you say in your introduction that a lot of people uh kind of confuse science fiction horror that uh, many kind of non-fans think of all science fiction as scary um and i've come across this when i tell people i like science fiction they say oh that creeps me out i don't want to read that but it's just not true of course we all know that most most science fiction isn't scary but you know, it didn't come out of thin air because there is a lot of science fiction that's deeply scary, and it goes all the way back to you know Frankenstein, right? Which, so I was thinking maybe you know if we wanted to talk, you know, kind of go around here and just talk about what are, you know kind of these hallmarks of the genre where people get this idea from that science fiction is scary. And to me, 
where this in the modern imagination has really come from is the Twilight Zone, which, in fact, most of those episodes aren't horrific in any way, but everyone remembers Shatner uh, with the... The um, Nightmare at 20,000 yeah, feet. feet and To Serve which is, Man. Which is based on a horror story uh, yeah. by uh, Richard Matheson, by Matheson. the way. But what are some other things? I don't know if they're, you know, that we, I guess we've touched on some that are our personal um, hallmarks of the genre, but um, I guess what, what, what kind of, what's a, hist- a little short history maybe we could do of science fiction horror stories or horror science fiction stories? In the 1950s, the there was a rash of uh, of movies which were science fiction. Uh, the science was a little flaky, uh, sometimes it's extremely flaky, but which were also uh, marketed as horror movies. That is, uh, usually with a double feature from American International, like uh, the Phantom of Twenty Thousand Leagues, or whatever it was. That may not be the right number of leagues. The title makes no sense whatsoever, of course. Uh, And The Day the World Ended, which are both science fiction. One of them is the usual uh, uh, thing that kept showing up in the 50s about radiation turning something into a monster. And and the other one is about after the atomic war. It It was a much better movie, probably because... Because Roger Corbett did it, one of his early movies. And after the atomic war, and it turns out atomic radiation turns uh, humans into uh, monsters with three eyes, bulletproof skin, and claws for heads. And also a second pair of arms coming out of their shoulders. And, of course, these were done as horror movies, but they they had flaky science, but they had a science fiction rationale. There were a lot of such movies. Uh, all the all the ones with giant insects, and giant grasshoppers, and giant people. I mean, who could who could forget Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman? Uh, on the in the poster, she looks like she's about uh, five hundred feet tall, but because she's holding a car like it's a toy, and that that probably settled people on the idea that science fiction equals horror, particularly since those movies were intended to appeal to teenagers who would go to see them at drive-ins. And there was also the science fiction uh, comic books at the time. Uh, a lot of them often had horrific stories, usually a, a, an ending where the, the person thinks he's gotten away and then the, the alien or the robot or whatever gets him at the end. Uh, the best best of those probably done by the EC Comics, who they were doing straight horror comics with Supernatural, but they had a couple of science fiction ones called Weird Science uh, and Weird Fantasy, which is part of its title was science fiction. And most of those stories were horrific, and that uh, it, it probably uh, put the stamp on all the people who were kids in the fifties that uh, science fiction was horror. A, a friend of mine in college. Uh, who was aware I was reading science fiction by the wheelbarrow full, uh, commented to me that she never read science fiction because she didn't want to be scared. So I, I get, uh, we made a deal. I was going to read uh, one of her favorite books, and she was going to read uh, Beyond This Horizon by Highline, which has absolutely nothing scary in it. And, and of course, she welched on the deal. <laughs> But so year, years later, I haven't seen her in decades. Years later, uh, she probably still thinks science fiction is scary. It, it maybe this is no longer the case as much 
since nowadays people associate science fiction more with Star Trek and Star Wars, as I, as I say in the book's introduction, unless you have a phobia for pointed ears or for people who breathe loudly, uh, those are probably not scary. So may, maybe we'll have a new generation which doesn't make that equation. Well, but there are some scary science fiction stories, and many of them are collected, or some of them are collected in, in space. No one can hear you scream. Um, and you all three, Sarah, Tony, and Hank, you wrote stories for this anthology. But before we started t- talked about them individually, I wanted to ask uh, Tony and Hank, as editors here at Bain, how, what the genesis of the anthology was and uh, how this project came about. Well, the project came about, I'd already been thinking about doing a collection of science fiction horror stories. And then Tony uh, suggested that I ought to do one where all the stories are set in space. Tony uh, Weisskopf. Uh, right, Tony Weisskopf, T-O and I. Maybe, maybe we should call her Antonia. Uh, or we could just call her the boss. Yeah. So the boss said they should all be set in space, uh, which meant that the list I'd sort of been halfway thinking of for the what for the uh, Horace science fiction collection I was thinking of, uh, most of them had to be thrown out because they were heavy on Earth. But the the idea was to have all the stories set in space so that it would fit the title. In space, no one could hear you scream. A a phrase originated alien, which uh, has gone through a great many uh, puns, some of which I should uh, I should not mention since they're obscene. But well, the title, um, that particular title, I remember we were it, it we had an anthology out last year cosmic a cosmic christmas and we're we've done another one a cosmic christmas to you that's coming out in december um and we were at a sales conference in new york and um the the sales reps just loved the idea that they had something they could sell that was tied into christmas and was science fiction and uh they just wish they had it for some other holidays and, and that and title. You, and you pitched them Columbus Day, right? <laughs> but they didn't go for that. Yeah, I think I was, yeah, our Groundhog's Day. Very yeah. scary Groundhog's Day. Story. I want to pitch the 4th of July right now. <laughs> oh, well, that, that might be on the, we've considered that for sure. And that might be on the drawing, on the, uh, somewhere in the, in the future, I think, if Tony wants to do it. But this one was, um, I, I think the title came to Tony, and she said it to the reps, and they loved it. And so she said, Hank's going to do that. He's already working on it. But I, saw, I think I saw the moment of conception of this anthology at that, at that moment. So. Well, let's talk about some of the stories. Um, Sarah, your story in the anthology is called Dragons. Um, it's sort of what I think of as a slow burn, scary story. It's a good portion of it's kind of just two people talking, but it's very unsettling the whole way through. The story, without giving away too much, the story posits that maybe all those monsters of legend weren't just figments of our imagination, and the reason we don't encounter them today is that they've moved on. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how the story came about. Well, first of all, Hank asked me if I wanted to play, and of course I said yes. Partly because, you know, it's always fun to run off from the current novel giving you problems to write something short that clears your head. But the other part of this is that one of the scariest passages I've ever read is not in a horror book. There is The Portuguese have, of course, an entire history with exploration and, and legends attaching to exploring the seas and all that. And the national poem is the Lusias, 
and it's and I could explain why, but I won't go into that. And it's about the discoveries and because I'm trying to remember, I think it was written in the 17th, but it might have been the 18th century. And there is a passage that's from the point of view, and it's very short, in the middle of this long poem, which is tries to consciously imitate stuff like the Iliad. There's this short passage where you're in the mind of a ship's navigator in the middle of a storm. And there's something that goes around the ship and scrapes its wings on the sails. And if it goes by just one more time, it will send them under. And he has to decide whether he's going to force forward. And the thing, which is always identified as the horror, not not anything, you know, it's actually identified as the misshapen, not not anything we can, not a word that we can associate with anything. It's the misshapen out there. The, we're in the mind of someone who has to decide whether to back down or to continue to unknown waters with the misshapen going around the ship and scraping its wings on the ship. And that's sort of what came to me when I thought of horror in space. I thought, you know, every time you're forging ahead into a new land, you're going to be afraid and you're going to imagine things out there. And what if it's not all imagination? And the tone, I had just been reading a Bradbury anthology, and the tone, the, the conversation between the two characters and the way the two characters come across sort of golden age, if that makes sense, is very much from having read a lot of Bradbury around that time. That's one of those slowly dawns on you stories, Sarah's is. That, um, and it slowly dawns on the, the main viewpoint character as well. That's Yeah. You know, Tony, I wanted to talk about your story, Frogwater, um, in his... A nonfiction book about the horror genre, uh, I can never say this right, D Dance Macabre, uh, Stephen King's book. Uh, he says there's three types of scary story, um, or that there's three levels scary stories work on. Um, the first is terror, which he um, says is the suspenseful moment before the monster is revealed. The second is horror, which is the feeling you get when you see the monster that caused the terror. And the third is the gross out. I think Frogwater works on at least two, maybe all three of those levels, but I think it really succeeds as a gross-out horror piece. You've got a blob-like alien that talks via flinging snot at the wall. Uh, you've got a woman drinking a glass of water that has frog eggs in it, um, hence the title. And, uh, you know, here, the first line I'll just read. The ship soothed my legs with the slop wands. Illyria ordered it to do so. She thought I was upset about the blisters on my thighs and shins, but the truth was I was used to those now. That is gross, sir. That's creepy and <laughs> gross. Um, so. so how did you come up with the story, and not just the gross-out stuff, but um, maybe the deeper scares as well? Well, the I mean, the gross-out stuff came directly from um, my son, uh, Hans, desperately wanted a, a frog for a pet. Um, he had seen firebelly toads at the, at pet smart. And, uh, we went down to the Creek near our house to see if we could find some frogs. We didn't find any frogs, but I found, you know, one of those masses of, um, of frog eggs that you find in creeks occasionally, especially in the South. And, um, I, we took it back and we didn't have anything to put it in to take it back, and except for a water bottle that we had was one of those, um, you know, just the plastic water bottles that you buy at the store. And um, so we put them, we sort of squeezed them down into that bottle, 
and took them back. To, we were thinking maybe we could get them to hatch or something. I don't know, but but they got forgotten and left on a on a shelf. One day, my uh, my wife came in, and um, she was really thirsty from working out in the garden, and um, she thought that it was water that one of the kids had drank had drunk halfway down. Uh, she took a big old drink of that frog water, and. Um, spit it out and she rushed over to the sink to to wash her mouth out and my daughter just couldn't help she thought it was funny um and it and my mother's uh, my mother <laughs> my wife stared at Koki um it felt it looked hurt because her daughter was laughing at her and, and Koki my daughter was um mortified that she had she had laughed at um and had hurt her mother's feelings and that was sort of the genesis of of that, and there's a scene of that in the in the story. Uh, but the um, the main thing about it is it's a child in danger story. And there's until I had kids, I, nothing really scared me very much. I I never have been scared by much horror. But suddenly a new kind of horror dawned on me, which is the child in danger story. It, it started to get to me in deep ways. And so, if I was going to write something that was really scary, I was going to write a child in danger story, and that's that's what I uh, decided to do with this one. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, when I read the story, it occurred to me another title for it could be, since the aliens communicate by spitting at each other, or in this case, there's only one alien, by spitting at the wall of the ship, which translates it, it could have been called In Space, No One Could Hear You Spit. Mm-hmm. But but I think I like Frogwater better. Yeah. Well, I thought I, I, my thought was that an amoeba-like creature that was, that would be the way it would communicate was by chemical uh, transfer instead of by you know talking. All right. Well, Hank, you edited the anthology, as we said, but you also contributed a story, uh, "Visiting Shadow," is it's what it's called, and it's the first new Hank Davis story in some time. Uh, About it's, thirty years. It's, it's, yeah, so quite some time. Uh, it's a deeply unsettling tale of cosmic horror that it draws on Lovecraft and actually. Uh, directly references him at one point, and you use uh, a bit from a Lovecraft story as the, uh, what is that, epigram right to it. But you don't fall into the trap of becoming Lovecraftian pastiche. Um, I, again, I just wanted to ask where you maybe got the idea, or where, how the idea came about, and also what it was like getting back into the writing game after, or writing fiction game after so long. Well, I was very rusty. On the other hand, I've probably written about two million words of promotional stuff for Bain in the last 20 years or so. And, uh... uh I hey, was a story in The Last Dangerous Visions. <laughs> when is that going to come out? I don't know. After, after Harlan, Harlan Ellison and I are both dead, uh, that's Harlan Ellison with a little R in the circle. After that's it, a famous know. anthology that, that anyway, goes. Yeah, so, yeah, I sold that story to Harlan in February 1969. So I, he he's had it for more than half either of our lives, but uh, uh, in the case of this one, I, I wrote it uh, fairly quickly, and, and in this case, I was sort of uh, channeling Keith Lauber, which is probably the main thing keeps it being. It's a Lovecraftian situation, but the hero's more like a Keith Lauber type, uh, since Lovecraft's characters generally just give up and they're overwhelmed by the horror of it all. And if they're still alive at the end of the story, uh, they hope they won't be alive much longer. But uh, Keith Lauber characters continue to fight, although the the ending is kind of more like Lovecraft, because Keith Lauber characters usually win, not every time. There are some exceptions to that. 
but uh, without giving away too much of the ending, uh, I'll say the Keith Lombard type character more or less accepts his fate at the end. But he's a tough, tough bird yeah. in the story. Yeah, he's, he's a not tough a, guy. Not a guy that falls apart. He's a guy that tries to deal. I mean, he yeah. After all, he's a veteran. Yeah. Even okay. if even if he is also a deserter, but that was necessitated by what happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought it was a great story, and I wish you would write more. Oh well, oh, maybe I thing. will. Yeah. Maybe for in space, no one can still hear you scream <laughs> to the return yeah. or whatever we're gonna. Well, we're yeah. gonna call the next I one. Know. Yeah, Don on Tony at some point. Well, I will. I will. I will, I will put in a plug plug for next year, which is we're doing another Halloween anthology. Yeah, but this will be all giant monsters. I don't know if I want to write a giant monster story, but. All right, so that will have that all, to all the giant, good giant monsters have been done. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe a giant, even the giant guinea pig. Oh, I should. The other thing about uh, my story that I forgot to mention was that Sarah gave me the idea, the main idea, and <laughs> because yay, Sarah, Sarah, you remember that that astronaut video where he was wringing out the wash rag um, on on the ISS and the water just clung to his hands. Um, and you mentioned it on Facebook. Uh, that that would be a good way to commit a murder. Oh. And I thought, I'm going to steal that before she writes it. <laughs> and and that uh, that's basically uh, it happens. Uh, it's an idea that, that uh, I used in this story. Let's put it that way. Well, if I, if I put it on Facebook, it was something I wasn't intending on using anyway. <laughs> I'm glad it's found out. Yeah, well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's all for this week. Uh, the anthology, one more time, is In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream, and it's out now from Bain Books. You can find it at your favorite retailers, online or in person. Uh, thanks to Tony Daniel, Hank Davis, and Sarah Hoyt for talking with me today, and thanks to all you happy haunts out there in podcast land for tuning in. Until next time, have a happy Halloween. Uh, bye, boys and ghouls. We're putting together an audio book project with our Bain authors in which we have each author pick out his or her favorite military poem or group of poems from the past and ask them to read it. This time we have another great rendition of a poem by Tom Crapman. This will be the fourth of Crapman poems we have. Tom Crapman is, of course, the creator of the Carrera series and the Countdown series. With new entry, come and take them. Here's Tom Crapman reading a Kipling poem. Pharaoh and the Sergeant, Rudyard Kipling. Said England unto Pharaoh, I must make a man of you that will stand upon his feet and play the game. That will maxim his oppressor as a Christian ought to do. And she sent old Pharaoh, Sergeant, what's his name? It was not a duke, nor earl, nor yet a viscount. It was not a big brass general that came, but a man in khaki kit who could handle men a bit with his bedding labeled Sergeant, what's his name? Said England unto Pharaoh, though at present singing small, you shall hum a proper tune before it ends. And she introduced old Pharaoh to the sergeant once for all, and left him in the desert making friends. It was not a crystal palace nor cathedral, it was not a public house of common fame, but a piece of red-hot sand with a palm on either hand, and a little hut for Sergeant What's-His-Name. Said England unto Pharaoh, you'd have, you've had miracles before, when Aaron struck your rivers into blood. But if you watch the sergeant, he can show you something more. He's a charm for making riflemen from mud. It was neither Hindustani, French, nor Coptics. It was odds and ends and leavings of the same. 
translated by a stick, which is really half the trick, and Pharaoh harked to Sergeant What's-His-Name. There were years that no one talked of. There were times of horrid doubt. There was faith and hope and whacking and despair. While the sergeant gave the cautions and he combed old Pharaoh out, and England didn't seem to know nor care. That is England's awful way of doing business. She would serve her God, or Gordon, just the same. For she thinks her empire still is a strand in Holborn Hill, and she didn't think of Sergeant What's-His-Name. Said England to the sergeant, you can let my people go. England used him cheap and nasty from the start. And they entered him in battle on a most astonished foe, but the sergeant he had hardened Pharaoh's heart, which was broke along of all the plagues of Egypt, three thousand years before the sergeant came. Then he mended it again in a little more than ten, till Pharaoh fought like Sergeant What's-His-Name. It was wicked bad campaigning, cheap and nasty from the first. There was heat and dust and coolie work and sun. There were vipers, flies, and sandstorms. There was cholera and thirst. But Pharaoh done the best he ever done. Down the desert, down the railway, down the river, like the Israelites from bondage, so he came. Tween the clouds of dust and fire to the land of his desire, and his Moses, it was Sergeant What's-His-Name. We are eating dirt and handfuls for to save our daily bread, which we have to buy from those who hate us most. And we must not raise the money where the sergeant raised the dead, and it's wrong and bad and dangerous to boast. But he did it on the cheap and on the quiet. And he's not allowed to forward any claim. Though he drilled a black man white, though he made a mummy fight, he will still continue Sergeant What's-His-Name, Private Corporal Color Sergeant and Instructor, but the everlasting miracle's the same. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the verge, a region on the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside aid, aid they are receiving in the form of weapons drops by agents claiming to represent the Star Kingdom. But it's a ruse. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason alignment, eugenic supremacist, who wish to see the Solarian League and the Star Kingdom in all-out war. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the nearby Talbot Quadrant. Goldpeak is sympathetic to the rebels, but is looking for the right place to strike a blow on their behalf. Now, as she begins to discover just what false promises have been made by agents of the Alignment, that time may be at hand. Here is Part 33 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. If you'd been briefed, you might be prepared to do something about that. 
since you haven't been. His voice trailed off and he shrugged heavily. Michelle looked at him for a moment, then glanced at her desktop display. It was set to mirror mode, showing the reflections of Master Sergeant Cognasso and Alfredo, and she reached out to fiddle with a crystal paperweight engraved with the hull number of her first hypercapable command. An instant later, Alfredo casually laid his left true hand on Cognasso's head. So whatever else is going on, this fellow at least thinks he's telling us the truth, she thought, which is all just as mysterious as hell, isn't it, Mike? Oh, the joys of senior flag rank. No, I haven't been briefed, she said calmly, tipping her chair back and resting her elbows on its arms so she could steeple her fingers under her chin. If you'd care to tell me what's going on, though, I'm more than willing to listen. Whether I'll be prepared to believe you or to act on whatever you have to say is another matter, of course. So, on that basis, is there something you'd care to tell me about? I'm sorry, my lady, but that's got to be the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of, Apollonia Munming said some hours later. Then she seemed to realize what she'd just said and shook her head. Scratch that. We've been hearing some pretty damned ridiculous things generally over the last few months, and it seems an appalling number of them are more accurate than we'd like. So let's just say I find this Ankenrot story a bit difficult to accept. I'd put it a bit more strongly than that myself, Admiral Goldpeak, Rear Admiral Mikhail Ruddick said. The red-haired, blue-eyed Ruddick commanded the 2nd Division of Munming's Super Dreadnought Squadron, and he was even more bluntly spoken, if possible, than Munming, Michelle reflected. That could be because he was on the smallish side and felt a little defensive about his lack of centimeters, or, even more likely, it could be because he was a Griffin Highlander and on the smallish side. I'd be inclined to go along with Admiral Munming and Admiral Ruddick, Michael Overstegen mused out loud. If Alfredo and Master Sergeant Cognasso hadn't vouched for him. I thought the same thing, Michelle admitted, sipping from the steaming mug of coffee Billingsley had deposited on the briefing room table at her elbow. But Alfredo does vouch for him. Whatever else he may have been doing, he wasn't lying. And Alfredo also confirms that his anxiety over what's going on in Mobius is genuine. She shrugged. However bizarre it sounds, Ankenbrandt really is playing messenger for a bunch of people who've been, or who think they've been, anyway, in contact with and receiving clandestine support from the Star Empire. Forgive me, ma'am, Cynthia Lecter said. But that's crazy. I mean, from the timetable he's described... They've been in contact with us since before Commodore Terakov even sailed for Monica. She nodded respectfully in Terakov's direction without ever looking away from Michelle. We had absolutely no interest in this region at that point. Why in God's name would we have been making clandestine contacts with a resistance movement directed at frontier security? Now, now, Cindy, Michelle corrected, waving an index finger gently. It's not a resistance movement against OFS. It's a resistance movement against this President Lombroso. He's just an OFS lackey, not the real thing, like they have in Madras. That doesn't change my point, ma'am, Lecter replied with a certain respectful asperity. It would still have been an incredibly foolish, risky, ultimately pointless thing for us to have done. 
and if we had been doing anything of the sort, and if Baroness Medusa really knew about it, do you think she would have sent us out here without at least mentioning it to you? No, Cindy, I don't, Michelle said calmly. That doesn't mean they haven't been in contact with somebody, though, and it doesn't mean they don't believe it's Manticore they've been talking to. But what would be the point? Lecter asked almost plaintively. Ivars? Michelle invited, looking at the tall, blonde Commodore. The same points you're raising occurred to me when I first heard Ankenbrandt's story, Captain Lecter? Terakov said, looking down the table at Michelle's chief of staff. In fact, I was inclined, especially in the absence of a tree-cat lie detector of my own, to write him off as either a complete crockpot or a frontier security plant trying to suck us into a misstep. Frankly, I'm still not completely ready to dismiss the second possibility. Even if he believes he's telling us the truth, he and all of his friends in Mobius could have been set up by OFS for that very purpose— on the other hand, as you pointed out yourself, there's the timetable. I can't see why Frontier Security would have been worrying about setting anything like this up before we ever crossed swords with Monica. As I say, I was about to write him off when Ensign Zilwicky suggested a third possibility to me. I realize some people— He carefully refrained from looking in Admiral Munming's direction. May be inclined to wonder if her father's— Radicalism, let's say, might affect her judgment? I don't happen to think that's very likely in her case, but even if it were, her suggestion still made a lot of sense to me. And that suggestion was Sir Ivas, Munming asked, but she was eyeing him intently, and her tone suggested she'd already figured out where he was headed. Ensign Zilwicky suggested that it's possible we and for that matter, the Resistance people in Mobius, are being set up, but not by frontier security. As she pointed out, it's obvious from Crandall's movements that Mesa must have put her into play at the same time they started providing battle cruisers to Monica, which just coincidentally would have been about the same time Ankenbrandt says his Resistance organization was initially contacted by Manticore, or for that matter, the time somebody began talking to Mr. Westman here on Montana and Norbrandt in Cornati. You're suggesting it's actually this Mason alignment, Commodore? Ruddock said slowly. The original notion wasn't mine, Admiral, but I think it makes a lot of sense, especially if the rather sketchy information we have so far from home is accurate and Mesa's been maneuvering us into a shooting confrontation with the League all along. If one of the local regimes, or OFS itself, were to break a resistance movement, all of whose leaders genuinely believed they'd been instigated, coordinated, and supplied by the Tsar Empire, how do you think the League would have reacted even before our current confrontations? There was silence for several seconds. Then Overstegen nodded. Always did think Helen had a pretty good head on her shoulders, he drawled. And sometimes a little paranoia is a useful thing. And speaking about being paranoid, does anyone think, assuming this little scenario holds atmosphere, that the bastards would have stopped with setting up one resistance movement? I don't know about anyone, Michelle said, but I don't. Assuming, as you say, Ensign Zilwicky's hypothesis holds atmosphere, 
and I'm very much afraid it could. For that matter, I'm afraid there's still worse to come. She cocked her head at the Commodore. Would you care to go ahead and share the rest of your unpleasant ruminations with everyone else as well, Ivars? I wouldn't like to take complete credit for them, ma'am, Terakov pointed out. In fact, once Helen Ensign Zilwicky, I mean, had gone that far, another rather nasty thought occurred to her. If this really is Mesa, and if they've contacted not just Mobius, but other independent or protectorate star systems out this way, what happens when the balloons start going up? When OFS and Frontier Fleet move in to put down the rebellions and the blood starts to flow, it wouldn't just be a matter of the PR damage we'd take in the League. Bad enough, hundreds or thousands of people would be killed, but if dozens of resistance movements start sending us messengers like Mr. Ankenbrandt, expecting the open assistance and support they've been promised, and we don't deliver, what happens to the tendency for independent star systems to trust us more than the Sollies? Those fucking bastards, Raddock said softly, then shook himself. Sorry about that, milady, he said apologetically. But I believe Commodore Terakov and Ensign Zilwicky have just converted my skepticism into something else. His eyes hardened dangerously. You've almost got to admire them. Aside from the time they've invested in it, look how little it's cost them to set all this up. That thought occurred to me, too, when Commodore Terakov first shared this whole fascinating train of thought with me, Michelle said sourly. And it leads to an interesting quandary, doesn't it? Heads nodded all around the table, and she inhaled sharply. All right. She sat up straighter, tapping an index finger on the table for emphasis as she continued. All of this is hypothetical, of course. I'm not going to pretend I don't think there's something to it, then. And to be honest, there are some potential upsides to the situation. For one thing, although I don't think the strategy ever actually occurred to anyone on our side, it really is a damned good way to force the League to disperse its efforts. That's one of the things that's going to make our supposed complicity so convincing to the Sollies when the shit finally gets around to hitting the fan. At the same time, we don't have any way to know how many other Mobiuses may be ticking away out there. And the truth is that Ensign Zilwicky's final hypothesis is downright scary. The damage this could do to the Star Empire's reputation outside the League doesn't bear thinking about. She looked around the table again. So we're going to begin contingency planning now, especially after how effectively Captain Zavala's squadron performed in Saltash. I don't think it's going to take Wallers to support something like Mobius. A destroyer division or a couple of cruisers should be able to handle anything Frontier Fleet's likely to be able to spare for rebel thumping. I'm not going to disperse my main combat strength, but I want plans to peel off light forces to respond to any of these manticore-supported rebellions we hear about. We can't do anything about the ones we don't know about, and I sure as hell don't want to encourage even more spontaneous uprisings. For that matter, what I'd really prefer would be to turn up in the role of peacemaker before things get too far out of hand. In the real world, that's not going to happen, though, and we all know it. So the way I see it, in this respect at least, we have no choice but to dance to the Alignment's music, assuming Mesa really is behind it, of course. 
I've already sent a dispatch boat on to Spindle with my conclusions, and to be frank, I'd be delighted to have guidance from Baroness Medusa and Prime Minister Alcazar before things get even more lively out here. In the meantime, though, I'm not going to let Mesa get away with branding us, not just as instigators of rebellion, but as the sort of people who abandon our cat's paws when the blood actually begins to flow. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 33, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to ace interviewer David F. Sharirad, the banshee-voiced Lara Haywood Corey, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a space ghost phantom cruiser filled with silver-haired moon maidens and zero-grav frilly boys in the spacecraft graveyard of Epsilon Eridani B to author Sarah A. Hoyt and Hank Davis, editor of... Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>